You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is co-host David Leach from ITK Services. David, how are you? I understand you're not so much up the creek without a paddle, you're um, off the grid without a battery. Yes, uh, I am without a battery. Thanks, Giles. And I trust all our listeners are enjoying the podcast. I won't do, we've, uh, I live in a part of Sydney that has had its experienced its second major weather-induced uh, um, uh, lines and poles outage uh, in three months. So the first one for me personally was 90 hours, and I think most of my suburb was like that. 90 hours is like about four days uh, off to, with no electricity. And today it's so far been two and a half days, and it's likely to go on for a while yet. Uh, I think, uh, you know, never in my life before we've had electricity uh, blackouts, but never for anything like as extended a period. Um, and so it's just interesting to see that happening. Uh, certainly, Giles, uh, uh, everyone wants to, I'm sure you can't buy a generator for love nor money, uh, noisy, smelly things that they are, but uh, uh, it does make me wish I'd taken the marginal decision to put a battery and some more solar in a bit earlier, and I'll happily probably be talking to my friends from Solar uh, Solar Ray fairly shortly about that. Oh, well, excellent. Yes. Well, look, um, on the subject of um, reliability, um, the coalition, I think, the, the politics has been dominated um, by um, the coalition and coal, the first four letters of their the party name. They seem to be very confused about coal, um, talking about um, one side sort of saying that they're not interested and the other side obviously um, handing out grants, $4 million to this Collinsville uh, feasibility study in North Queensland. Um, it's now emerged that the agreement with um, New South Wales also included a commitment to deliver three of the UNGI projects from New South Wales, which at this stage includes Trevor St. Baker's extension of Vales Point. Um, David, um, look, what's going on? I mean, obviously, a coal, a one gigawatt coal plant in North Queensland doesn't make any sense at all on a whole bunch of reasons. Well, that's, uh, it, it depends whose point of view you're looking at from, Giles. The, the reality is that it's the difference between politics, uh, economics and climate. Uh, on politics, it can be a win in Queensland if you're of the uh, Matt Canavan and, and the hard right persuasion. They believe that they won their election through their support of coal. Uh, and I must say that I think uh, the Queensland Labor government and we shouldn't talk too much politics. And Anthony Albanese, as the leader of the Labor Party, seems to be uh, bowing to that view. They've gone certainly far more cautious on their con commitment to renewables than, than previously or decarbonisation. But obviously, from a long-term economic perspective, uh, uh, we're getting the lead in decarbonisation is going to be a, an economic winner. We're already seeing that in Europe. Uh, from a lot, and from a climate perspective, uh, you know, it's just uh, terrible to be having anything more to do with coal. So, it just depends whose eyes you look through it. Uh, the long-term eyes uh, are going to win the debate in the in the long term. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. We are living uh, not in a climate emergency, as I think our, our special guest today is going to say, but we are living in a state 
of constant uh, climate alarm. Anyone who reads the summary published on Carbon Brief of the state of the climate in 2019. Last year, we did a fantastic podcast at the beginning of the year with John Englander talking about sea level rise and ocean heat content, uh, glacier melting. Uh, you could go on. Why don't I stop and you start? Yes, we'll actually get to that interview with uh, Mark Harden from the ANU in, in, in a jiffy. I'm just wondering, uh, though, um, David, if you had anything more to say about the Queensland coal generator. I mean, you talk about the politics maybe winning out, winning out over the climate and economics, but sure, I, I don't see how the politics can, can, can win when the economics of a coal generator um, just looks so damn awful. Um, it would require significant government subsidies, not just for the actual build and the, and the running of it, but also indemnity against any future carbon price or any other sort of future action at all. I mean, it, you know, from that point of view, surely it makes no sense. And you could probably argue even from a grid point of view, it's probably not needed up there. So I went to visit the old Collinsville power station uh, when it was part done as a public offering as part of Transfield Infrastructure Fund. Uh, we flew out there and had a look at it and very dismal old coal station was then. Since then, uh, since it's been, and the coal used to get wet, which didn't help matters very much when it rained or flooded in that part of Queensland. The only people who were sorry about its demise were the people who lived in uh, uh, landlords in Bowen who stopped selling their houses for a ridiculous price on the coast. Um, um, the, uh, uh, the, since then, four 50 megawatt solar farms have been built that have uh, hogged up all the trans existing transmission on that line. Uh, I do believe the Queensland people would see this power station uh, for, as a replacement for Gladstone, which is coming to the end of its uh, natural life. Uh, or if Angus Taylor has its way, it will have an unnatural life. But uh, uh, so so um, and then there's prospects of putting some uh, electricity into Curtis Island. If Curtis Island, most of the upstream LNG industry, well, all of it pretty much is electrified already. And that adds a significant amount of Queensland electricity demand. But on Curtis Island itself, which is the part, port island off Gladstone, where the actual compression of the gas into it, the liquef liquefaction of the gas takes place, that actually would use the equivalent of about uh, uh, 900 megawatts from memory itself. Uh, but uh, the, once it was built to run on reciprocating engines, um, uh, to, to run on, you know, it, then you can't re-electrify the most of it. But there's a proposal to electrify a little bit that would uh, save about nine petajoules of gas a year, which is pretty trivial in the bigger scheme of things. So I don't want to get too much bogged down in the detail. As far as the economics go, it's all going to depend on the cost of capital, which will depend on whether they get a contract of some description, uh, and the cost of coal, and, and whether they'll just be buying uh, existing coal from an existing mine, or whether you're going to need a brand new mine to, to go with it. Mm, building a coal-fired generator to fund an LNG export terminal, not quite what we might need in this um, in this age of um, climate um, change. Look, I think it's probably a good point now to talk to um, introduce our guest speaker for the day. I talked earlier on to Mark Howden. He's the head of the um, ANU Climate Change Program, and he's also the vice chair of the IPCC, and here's what he had to say. Mark Howden, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Hi, Giles. You're making a very important speech at the um, annual ANU Climate Change um, event. Your basic theme of your speech is that this is not a climate emergency, this is a climate crisis. Perhaps you can tell us what the difference is and what you mean by that. 
Look, I, I guess we've heard a lot of people talk about a climate emergency, and and I can understand the rationale there. But when you actually look at what an emergency is, it's a an unanticipated event uh, which requires an immediate short-term response. Whereas with climate change, what we're dealing with is actually highly anticipated. We've actually been predicting these sorts of changes for three decades or so. And, and in addition, instead of an immediate short-term response, what we actually need is essentially a really long-term response, a response that lasts for decades and perhaps centuries. And so in some ways, what we're dealing with is quite the opposite of an emergency. It's a, you know, anticipated versus unanticipated. It's long-term versus short-term. And so, you know, I'd, I'd sort of just try to reframe it away from the emergency frame and into, uh, you know, a longer-term strategic frame. That's an interesting point, isn't it? I hadn't actually thought of it by by that. And I guess people have been asking for short-term solutions or long-term solutions. We, I guess the frustration is at the moment that we've got really nothing, um, even in the short-term or even in the long-term at the moment. Yeah, well, certainly, uh, you know, we're, we're a bit lacking on the long-term here. Um, but, uh, but there has been a lot of short-term action, and we see that in many different ways, you know, um, the ways people respond to, to the fires, uh, the ways people re respond to the floods. So, um, but I, I guess the, the point here is that um, we do need to, um, you know, think about the, the long-term and the strategic, because that's the national interest is actually putting that um, right in the front of people's minds. Mm. We might get to that in a minute, what the solutions are. Um, but just a bit more about the climate science. I mean, I guess um, a yeah. lot of the um, issue in front of us has been brought home by the not just the bushfires, but I think some of the other extreme weather events. Um, in your speech, you just talk about the fact that um, you make two points. One is that we, if we continue in as normal, we could be looking at a t average temperature increase of around five degrees by the end of the century. And I'm guessing that's going to be quite catastrophic if we've actually seen what's happened at uh, one degree and 1.5 in Australia. And you also make the really interesting point that this idea of we were we might be living in a new normal just is not valid at all. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So again, you know, quite a lot of people have been talking about the idea of a new normal, and it's almost become a, a bit of a, a throwaway line. Um, but when you actually think about it, a, a normal is in a sense uh, something, again, that we expect. So, uh, you know, typically in the case of, say, weather or climate, we've got a mean condition, an average condition, around which you get variability. So variability, you know, driven by El Nino or the Indian Ocean Dipole or something like that. And, and so, in a sense, if that occurred, um, we'd have a normal climate with variability around that. Um, what we're actually dealing with is is actually a continuously changing climate. Our projections are for climate to change at least for decades and possibly for centuries. And uh, and around that, there will be not only variability, but all the projections point to increasing variability. So, you know, the, the difference between wet, wet and dry periods may increase. Um, uh, we, we're getting extreme hot conditions, and but also in parts of the world, we're getting extreme cold conditions. And so that variability is likely to increase over time, and so uh, very difficult to frame that as a normal situation. You know, the only normal will be constant change. And so, when mm. people talk about the new normal, it sort of takes the eye off the ball. Um, that what we're dealing with is not a step change into some new state. It's actually going to be continuous change, and that actually 
uh, drives a different way of thinking about how we're going to adapt. Well, it should do that, yes. I mean, and I guess that reflects the fact that people might have thought, OK, well, we got through the bushfires this summer, so um, we've just got to prepare a little bit more and we'll be OK next time it comes around. But I guess the point is, in an ever-warming world, um, the scale of those bushfires might be something that's currently not anticipated. Absolutely, and we've already started to see that. Yeah. Now, thinking about those long-term solutions, um, I guess the first base then is to recognise where we need to get before we um, before we uh, start setting short-term targets, or perhaps it would be good to have short-term targets anyway, just recognising the urgency with which we need to act. But um, you say that we at least need to agree on a zero emissions target by 2050, and if I remember rightly from my time at the Paris Climate Talks, I think um, if we're aiming for 1.5 degrees, then we probably need to have zero emissions actually before then anyway, but I guess 2050 might be a start. That's right. So so to meet the Paris Agreement goals, which are temperature goals, they're not emissions goals, um, uh, the, for the main one, you know, the, the one that's in a sense mandatory, is uh, well below two degrees um, by the end of the century and... Uh, and to do that, we've effectively um, got to go to net zero by 2070. Um, to stick to the 1.5 degree goal uh, within the Paris Agreement, we've effectively got to go net zero by 2050, or as you point out, slightly before, um, just depending on uh, you know, emission trajectories in the meantime. And and of course, that's a, that's a, a you know, huge challenge, um, but also a huge opportunity. And there's been many commentators talking about that opportunity as well as that challenge. Uh, but regardless, it, it means really significant change over a relatively short period of time. And, and we can't do that without getting really significant buy-in pretty much from every level of our society and from every country across the globe. So, so there's no room for laggards in this that I think um, we all have to contribute. Mm. The other point I'd probably make, though, is that if we're sort of trying to frame... Uh, our timing of response, um, it's really important to actually reflect on how, as a science community, in a sense, we've been um, significantly underestimating both the rate of change and the, the rate of change in risk associated with climate change. So when we look back at, at sequential IPCC reports from the third assessment report onwards, um, every report we've done a, a thing called a, a burning embers risk assessment where we essentially assess risk for different systems at different temperatures so you know two degrees above three degrees above etc and what we see when we analyze those is persistently across those different uh, assessment reports uh, we see a higher level of assessed risk at any given temperature and so so in a sense the window uh, for avoiding um, uh, really significant and dangerous impacts of climate change actually has been shrinking. So the more we understand about climate change, uh, the less, uh, um, the, the more anxious, I guess, we should be because the, the impacts are actually starting to appear earlier and earlier in the trajectory of change. Which I guess reinforces the point that we need not just long-term targets, say zero emissions by 2050, and think, okay, well, we can do the bulk of that in the last 10 or 15 years and we can put it off till now. We actually need to move really quickly as soon as we can uh, because I guess the other element of this is, is what's known as carbon budgets, which basically sort of say to, to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, we really need to sort of stop emitting before we exhaust that budget. That's right. And so there's essentially a linear response between accumulated carbon dioxide in the atmosphere 
and global temperature change. And, and what that means is for a given temperature uh, change in the atmosphere, uh, we have a limited carbon budget. And so the slower we are in terms of reducing our emissions, the sooner that budget gets used up. And in the IPCC 1.5 degrees report, there was a, a solid assessment of that emissions budget. And essentially at current emission rates, it gave us around about 12 years. Um, and, and in the intervening period between when that assessment was done and, and published in 2018, um, uh, our emissions actually have gone up. So we're actually racing towards the edge of the cliff even faster than we were before. Right. So some sort of um, modest reduction in emissions by um, 2030 or 2035 or whatever doesn't really get us there at all if we want to be serious about these um, these Paris, emission, these Paris um, uh, temperature targets. Absolutely. Uh, the earlier we start reducing our emissions significantly, uh, the easier it is going to be, uh, the lower the risk and the lower the cost. Let's get on then to solutions. Um, you've got a bunch of different speakers um, at this conference. Um, what are they going to be? Um, what, what are you and what are the others telling us about the solutions? Do we have the technologies that we need at hand? Um, uh, wind and solar going to be sufficient? Um, I guess that's just part of the grid. I think there's probably other parts of the of the economy that um, may be more challenging. Uh, absolutely. So when when we look at the Australian discussions, almost. 95% or something like that is, is absorbed in the essentially the discussion about coal versus renewable and renewables in our energy system, in our electricity system. And, and obviously that's critically important. Um, but what that does uh, is it actually frames the debate away from other parts of the climate change discussion, which I think we need to have. So our electricity system is just around a third of our greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, which means essentially two-thirds of our emissions are largely being ignored in the public debate. So, in, and sitting in there, as well as being challenges in terms of reducing emissions from sectors like transport and agriculture and industry and waste, uh, fugitive emissions from mines and things like that, there's really big opportunities as well. And so by not having that debate, um, we're actually foregoing potential opportunities uh, that can put Australia in a good position. And as well, by focusing almost entirely on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, um, which is really important, um, but at the same time, by focusing on that, we're actually ignoring uh, climate adaptation. And as we've seen in this um, recent several months, uh, adapting to our climate and dealing more effectively with emerging climate risks is actually crucially important, not just in terms of human welfare, but also in terms of our environment and really clearly in terms of our economy. The economic damage of these fires and smoke is huge and, uh, and it will probably be quite some time before we're actually able to calculate that. Mm. Um, it's interesting, the, um, you know, the, the opportunities that you talked about there in actually decarbonising the economy. I mean, we still can't seem to get out of this debate or this assumption that to reduce emissions is to add cost to the economy and to sort of, um, you know, um, you know, reducing jobs, you know, slashing industry, um, lowering uh, GDP. How do we change that mindset? Um, because, I mean, it's been quite clear for a while now that um, wind and solar and storage technologies, for instance, are cheaper than new coal if, um, if you need to replace your coal-fired power stations. And I'm guessing that um, there are similar opportunities in, um, in the other sectors that you mentioned. Um, how, how has that discussion changed? Or how, yeah, how to change the debate? Well, I guess, guess what part of it is actually just 
really spelling out uh, the benefits of um, alternatives. So uh, if, we're, if we're, say, looking at uh, renewables versus coal, um, what came out just the other day from uh, an analysis, uh, uh, I think it was the AEMC, uh, indicated that our, our prices, our electricity prices, across all states except, I think, WA, because of methodological issues, um, actually had reduced um, because of the penetration of renewables. And and so, you know, that, that's really important because it actually goes entirely counter to the sort of, in a sense, the standard argument that's been used that going renewables costs us money. Um, so, so really um, illustrating uh, through hip pockets um, that, in fact, uh, the sort of standard narrative is actually incorrect and so we actually have to raise the profile of those those sorts of things um, similarly uh, we've had really interesting discussions about the opportunities for Australia to become a you know an energy superpower and uh, and, th and that's uh, you know reversing the sort of standard sort of uh, discussion which is uh, you know going renewables and, and taking on climate change uh, is actually an impact and it limits uh, our economic options, whereas in fact if you reframe it, it expands our economic options. Hmm. Um, similarly, if you if you ignore the uh, impacts of extreme events, um, what you do is incur additional costs that you wouldn't otherwise be, and so that's a drag on the rest of your economy. So um, in a sense, reframing this as not a cost of change, but it's actually that balance between the cost of action versus inaction and increasingly what the literature shows um, in various analyses is that the costs of inaction grossly outweigh the costs of action. So mm. by taking on climate change, we'll actually be all better off and our economy will also be better off. Mm. Well, I guess that's probably been made clear by people um, like Nicholas Stern um, all the way back before the um, Copenhagen Climate Conference and, uh, as you say, by numerous reports um, since then and it must be coming clearer and clearer to, to many people now. The next climate change conference is going to be held in Glasgow in the UK at the end of this year. Um, Boris Johnson, the new Tory government, um, seems to be taking a deep interest in this. How crucial, given the concern or the worries about the carbon budget and the fact that we need to reverse this sort of um, trend of actually increase emission, increasing emissions over the last year, how crucial is these is this climate talks, this series of climate talks going to be this year? I mean, I think some people actually describe it as almost like a last chance um, to get some sort of agreement and sort of put, you know, pointing the ship in the right direction. What, what do you make of it? Oh, look, I, I don't know that I ever think of things as last chance, um, particularly in political domains. Um, but, it, but it certainly is a um, fairly critical meeting in terms of the progress of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and specifically the Paris Agreement. So, so this, uh, this conference of parties really should um, wrap up the whole discussion about uh, essentially the um, you know, capacity to transfer emissions credits from country to country and the rules under which that happens. Uh, it should wrap up the approach to adaptation and loss and damage. Um, and, and also there's an expectation that at this meeting uh, countries will announce uh, the next step of their emission redu reduction trajectories. So the whole idea of, of Paris, the Paris Agreement, was for the sort of commitments to reduce emissions were only a first step. So Australia's 26 to 28% reduction um, was a first step towards a longer-term trajectory of emission reduction. And it's called the ratchet mechanism because it can only go up, it can't go down, um, unless you bail out of the treaty in, entirely. So... Um, 
So the expectation is that uh, countries will go along to Glasgow with promises to reduce emissions over and above what they promised back in Paris. Well, let's see if um, that actually happens or not. Um, at your conference, have you invited any government ministers to come along and sort of partake in the discussions and to and, and have a listen? Everyone's always welcome, um, and uh, uh, and and we we play a straight bat. We're not not a partisan, you know, politically partisan group. Um, we've invited um, at times both uh, people from all all different parties uh, to our events. Um, in this particular case, we weren't able to get uh, the um, opening speakers we were after, um, uh, but instead we've actually got eminent Australians like uh, Penny Wensley, who used to be uh, the ambassador for environment for Australia, uh, to open the event. Um, so, so we we look to um, have extremely interesting events which bring in different perspectives. So there's the climate perspective, um, dealing with impacts of extreme events and on health, amongst other things. It's how we communicate with with people on climate change. So how can we more effectively uh, uh, engage with people um, so that we understand their perspectives and draw on their knowledge in terms of solutions, uh, and also how we do transitions at community level. So how we can move from where we are to where we think we need to be. Hmm. Just on the IPCC, you are um, vice chair of the IPCC. What's the, what's the next report to come um, from there? And when can we expect that? So the next reports are essentially what we call the main assessment reports. Uh, so the first of those is Working Group 1, uh, which is on the climate science, um, and that's due in about 18 months, I think. Uh, and then followed by that as uh, Working Groups 2 and 3. So Working Group 2 deals with um, impacts and adaptation, and Working Group 3 deals with emission reduction. Uh, and following that is what we call the synthesis report, which is where we bring in um, all of the key messages from those three assessment reports, but also from the three special reports that we've had, which is the 1.5 degrees report, the land report, and the oceans report. And so we sort of bring that all of those information, that those messages, into one short document for policymakers. Mm. Nice big, nice big capital letters too, so I think I understand it. Um, Mark, thank you very much for joining um, Energy Insiders. Good luck with the conference um, in, um, at the ANU this week. And um, yes, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Giles. And that was Mark Howden, the head of the ANU Climate Chair Program and also vice chair of the IPCC. Look, it's an interesting comment. I mean, you alluded to it, alluded to it at the start of this podcast, David. Um, we're not in a climate emergency that sort of, you know, um, signifies that something that's been unexpected in short term. Um, Mark Howden describes it as a climate crisis, so it requires a considered response and a long-term response and obviously accelerated short-term actions because of the climate budget. And... Um, I think the other salient point which really interested me was this um, idea of, oh, we're going to have a new normal. Well, we're not going to have any such thing because things will just change too dramatically. Yes, I think this is the thing that people don't understand about climate change is just how rapidly it's occurring relative to the scale of geological climate change that we've had in the past. Uh, you know, that took place over 100,000 years and sea levels certainly were way higher at times then than they are today. Uh, what we're doing is forcing a massive amount of climate change uh, into the world ecology uh, within the space of 100 years. And uh, the fact is that's not enough time for species uh, and things to adapt. I mean, given enough time, everything will adapt to a hotter temperature, but uh, we're not going to be given enough time. 
Look, it, it's not, uh, it is an emergency in the sense that um, very rapid action. We heard talk in the, in, uh, of the car, remaining carbon budget, and it's as skinny as ratchet. And, you know, carbon emissions are still going up. Uh, there's only um, more needs to be done. Australia is a world leader in the economy. If you look at our scope three emissions, our coal exports uh, are a major contributor one way or another to global warming. Uh, and uh, our attitude uh, and our philosophy towards it and the government's approach uh, is of vital importance. It's the challenge of the commons. Our own scope two emissions may be relatively small on the, glo on the global scale, but we, we punch above our weight when we want to, and that's where we, what we need to do. Exactly, when we want to. Look, I'm talking about the wind and solar transformation. Um, a couple of interesting things been happening in the market. Um, one, we've got some interesting, well, we've got some interesting comments from the coalition, um, particularly from um, Matt Canavan about um, comparing them to be dull bludgers and his replacement, Keith Pitt, seems to be you no know, particular friend of renewables. But um, we did see the report from AEMA, the quarterly dynamics, which I find a really excellent sort of source of information, just looking at the fall in prices um, in the fourth quarter, which I think you've documented already and, um, and pretty much the same reasons, the increased amount of wind and solar. But um, it looks like the um, it looks like the rollout of um, some of these wind and solar plants are going to be quite heavily constrained. Um, we've seen constraints on wind farms, solar farms, sorry, in Victoria and New South Wales because of these system strength issues in Victoria. Uh, we've seen delays to new connections. We we now learnt that um, people who want to build a project have been told pretty much, well, you're going to have to wait until we build a new interconnector. Um, we've talked a lot about lack of planning here um, on this podcast, particularly from you, David. Um, this just seems to be confirmation about that and also the perverse effect of, of, of some rules like the do no harm ones. We just... Um, there's so much work really to to get everything right and all lined up so we can actually get on with the job with this um, energy transition. No doubt about that, Giles. You, you've done a great job covering this story. Uh, it amazes me how much you need to know to be part of the commentariat here. You have to know, you know, electrical power engineering principles about system strength, uh, which I don't really know. Um, you have to know about <laughs> <neither>. market economics. <laughs> you have to know about market economics and you have to know about climate impacts, uh, you know, it's, and you have to know about politics. It's a, it is, in that sense, a multidisciplinary thing uh, required. Uh, but uh, what we can see is, is that, in fact, the solar and wind boom, which is essential uh, from a carbon perspective, nevertheless, has been carried out in a very uh, Ill, in, Ill way. And it's the downside, if you like, of just letting the market run, run ahead of itself without any planning. I mean, this is... Uh, uh, we saw another significant resignation from the AEMC this week. Tim, Tim Nelson, that we all have a soft spot for, uh, um, has left the AEMC. And frankly, when you are doing a major transition, markets don't operate normally, or you cannot markets operate, but we, the people, cannot rely on them to do the job entirely by themselves. And it's a, it's a, we are in a war fitting, footing as far as this transition. Um, uh, transmission transformation goes and we need a bit more direction I, I, I think. Yes look someone's actually sent me an email today saying look can you get on to Mike Cannon Brooks and Elon Musk they built a big battery in 100 days can't they do something about an interconnector I'm not too sure they can do it in 100 yeah. days but um, <laughs> but I mean that's, that's kind of the but action John, that we John, need. Just, just, need. Just, just, just on the, uh, Mike Cannon Brooks uh, and Tesla 
and you referred to energy dynamics. One of the great charts they uh, put on LinkedIn about that showed that in the last quarter, battery revenue, FCAS uh, and uh, so system services, as well as the uh, uh, electricity energy, uh, battery revenue uh, from utility batteries exceeded pumped hydro. So it's on the, it's on the, it's on the move. But that, that race is not run yet. It's just the first, first leg. No, that's right. Look, I've actually got a story coming up on that. I've written it and haven't actually published it um, yet at the time of this podcast. By the time it's, um, this podcast is actually published, I probably would have published my story. But um, um, it, um, it offers me the opportunity to ask you about what does that mean then for some of those really big pumped hydro projects? Um, AEMO actually notes that their, their arbitrage difference actually um, was reduced. So are these things actually going to be economic at such a scale? Well, uh, you know, uh, my new idea that I've been telling to people regularly is that there's three different markets for energy storage, the, uh, three different energy markets, the five-minute market, batteries are going to win that, the daily market, that's going to be competitive between a number of different uh, technologies, and the seasonal market where, you know, anything that you need longer-term storage, it's either going to be hydrogen or pumped hydro. Uh, in, in the daily market, I mean, uh, round-trip efficiency uh, of pumped hydro is a disadvantage compared to batteries. Uh, and the long lead time for pumped hydro projects essentially means, uh, and the environmental issues with them, each one of them, essentially means that their um, uh, cap cost of capital is higher than batteries as well. So uh, those are things, uh, things to think about. By the time someone identifies a niche in the market and you get around to building pumped hydro, you can have 20 batteries all, all in its lunch if they want to, and they could operate one after another, if you see what I mean, and effectively do ten, eight hours of storage, one hour each. <laughs> well, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. There's certainly a lot of money being invested in pumped hydro projects or proposed for pumped hydro projects. If you think about Snowy 2.0, you've got Tasmania's Battery of the Nation, you've got the um, three or four or five jostling for position in South Australia, um, a couple... Um, positioning themselves in New South Wales, and, um, and and just this week we discover a new one up in the north of Queensland, which also got one point four or two million dollars to help a for a feasibility scheme, which might also be combined with a new dam up there. So, look, all interesting stuff. Um, anything else to so, Charles? Just on that, just just on that on North Queensland, the key is what happens to Gladstone. You know, the uh, there needs to be a commitment to uh, closing Gladstone down. Uh, and then you can do the proper planning for it. So this is why we keep having this battle. Uh, we, we, we don't make any, any, any progress. Uh, um, so uh, I, I want to talk about just briefly, because it's a long podcast already, uh, Angus Taylor's uh, divide and conquer strategy. So, you know, he wasn't getting anywhere with, uh, with the COAG. So we're now we're seeing all these bilateral deals. But in the end, it's going to be very important to see what the attitude of the Labor states is to doing bilateral deals. Uh, the federal government is effectively handing out money to all of the states to get some secret agenda, which isn't really all that secret, but it doesn't have to be publicly justified. Uh, goals achieved uh, uh, just by essentially bribing, from one point of view, uh, states to, 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 to go along with it. Absolutely. And in the meantime, having the Ungi um, program hanging over there where you've got these sort of um, different projects, large scale, either um, pumped hydro or gas peaking plants projects sort of hanging over them with basically no advancement. And um, it's obviously holding up investment in um, other new dispatchable projects. So Kerry Schott's made that clear. The Grattan Institute's made that clear. We've made that clear. AGL and all the other retailers, the big um, utilities have made that clear. But um, he seems um, very happy to 
sort of keep it drawn out. I mean, those two plants that we talked about in Queensland and Victoria, which got sort of, you know, an advance from the shortlist, still absolutely no details of what scale of support they'll get, how much, in what form, when, how it will operate. Um, now they've made a commitment to sort of try and move forward the three ones in New, um, New South Wales. And uh, if you think about it, even the, even the $4 million they gave in do Collinsville, well, that was actually announced in March last year, and it's taken them almost a year just to sort of announce that they're going to actually hand over the $4 million. So they don't seem to be much in a hurry to do anything. No, Giles, I won't spend too much more time on it, but this is the point. It's a secret program with the goals not even being told to their supporters within the party in case the pro-coal guys don't like some part of it. So we're left to find out or to guess at what the government's actually plan uh, is for the broader thing, for the broader uh, uh, electricity economy. Uh, I don't think that's good enough. Meanwhile, we've got something that cost $20, $30 million probably, the integrated system plan, uh, that's uh, uh, sitting there, that is the responsibility of uh, answerable to all the joint governments, that is not getting the support that it deserves from the federal government. I mean, the explicit out in public, Scott Morrison saying, we like the ESB. If we do that, uh, it's going to lead to more reliable, uh, more sustainable, uh, economic, efficient electricity outcomes, rather than these uh, sneaky deals where the motivations at the, at the most charitable, uh, have to be pieced out by people. You know, even if they're good motivations, they deserve to see the light of day in the nice public. It's, you can't just announce that gas is part of the future without making it clear how gas is part of the future and what. what anyway, I've said enough. <laughs> anyway, all good stuff, um, David. Um, look forward to um, rejoining the podcast next week. Just want to thank our sponsors, Solaray Energy and Evergen, for their ongoing continued support. I'd um, like to thank our listeners for tuning in. I'd like to thank Mark Harden for joining us today in the interview. Um, we also have a Solar Insiders podcast this week, and the Driven podcast is also returning. Um, please do... Um, Give us your feedback, and um, if you do get the chance, onto the um, Apple iTunes and um, leave a review for this podcast. That may help in uh, broadening its reach and popularity. And uh, we thank you for listening, and um, talk next week, David. Uh, yes, Giles. Hopefully, I'll have my computer and some power back. Although, knowing that, I mean, the final comment I'd, I'd leave listeners with is, uh, you know, we've had a lot of reliability issues in the NEM just recently. Uh, caused by bushfires and caused by storms. You know, we haven't had generators not being able to cope. What we've had is weather-induced uh, outages that have caused, uh, you know, islanding in South Australia, uh, a, a, a near blackouts in New South Wales and Victoria, and my personal house not to have any power for ex over 120 hours in the last quarter, which is just not good enough. Cheers. Not good enough, no, actually. And look, South Australia is a really interesting story, and I think we might focus more on that next week. Um, my understanding is that it's going to be resynchronized with the uh, Victorian grid on Sunday. So far, we've had about 10 or 11 days um, of um, South Australia islanded. The state has continued to run on an average of well over 50%. It's been quite a remarkable performance from the people at AEMO, I should say. There was actually no running instructions on how to do this. They've um, managed to keep it together. Uh, really quite an interesting result. I think um, and a very positive one and uh, very interesting just for Australia's future and also the world's energy future so I think we're going to talk more about that in the future because I think it's very interesting anyway that's a wrap for today bye for now talk next week Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites 
With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.